Now hear God's holy word. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. But being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven." Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we pray for your spirit today to help us to receive and hear and learn and internalize and meditate upon your word. Father, strengthen us with your word. Your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. People of God, you know and I know that uh, my wife is an expert at a great many things that I can't do, and I'm in awe of her many talents But one special ability that she has that I've never learned myself, one thing that I can't imitate and I can't do, is she has this special gift. It's her superpower. It's called turning off a bad movie. Uh, I tend to be a completist. And so when I start something, I feel like I've got to finish it because I don't want to miss out. I think maybe it will get better if we just stick with it another 30 minutes. Maybe there's, maybe there's something wrong with me that I'm not understanding, but that it will be revealed in a short amount of time. Uh, but she doesn't have patience for bad movies or bad novels or bad TV series. She very easily says, nope, I'm done. And I I wish I could do that. I wish I had that ability, but I'm not not able to. She says, nope, I'm done. And then I turn on season four and think, well, maybe this is the season where it picks up. Maybe, Maybe here is where it gets better. That's why I'm still watching Star Wars movies, even though they stopped making good ones in 1983. I think this one, this is gonna be the good one. So I acknowledge I have a problem and life is too short to finish terrible movies and terrible books and terrible TV series. I acknowledge I've got a problem, but there's, there's one story I'm gonna hold on to. There's one story that we all agree, and, and this is a no brainer, one story where I say, we don't need to turn it off before the end. And that's the story, of course, the story of the gospel, the account of the most important events in human history. Not only that we don't stop reading it, but we don't stop teaching and contemplating and rejoicing over and celebrating all of the events in the life of Jesus. Churches and Christians tend to bail out of the story of Jesus around the resurrection. There's there's nothing left to consider. There's nothing left to celebrate. We think, you might say, well, I thought the resurrection was the end of the story. What else is there? Well, certainly the resurrection is the high point of the gospel, but the resurrection is not the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. 
After his resurrection, as we've been reading and, and have heard through our gospel readings over the last several Sundays, Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples, teaching them, encouraging them, preparing them for what was ahead. He appeared in his resurrection body before different groups of people, sometimes in groups as small as two, sometimes in groups as large as 500. And only after this, only after this 40-day period, was he taken up into heaven, received into a cloud, and removed from the sight of his apostles. Jesus didn't hang around until he faded into obscurity. He didn't die and leave behind a body. He didn't transform into something else. He didn't sprout wings and become an angel. He ascended physically, visibly, bodily into God's glory cloud. And he was transported into heaven in the sight of his apostles. And the next time we see Jesus in the scriptures is on the time when uh, Stephen was martyred. And there we see Jesus standing next to the throne of God, standing at God's right hand. And then the next time we see him after that, Jesus is in all of his glory in heaven, in his royal majesty in the book of Revelation. So the gospel is not complete without the ascension. The ascension is a critical part of the story of Jesus. In the Apostles' Creed, we rehearse the story of Jesus' life. We confess that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So let's not put the book down until it's finished. Don't check out uh, at Easter and say, there's nothing more to celebrate. There's nothing more to rejoice until we get to Christmas and, and there's nothing more to uh, celebrate. Uh, let's keep the story going. And I would, uh, today is Ascension Sunday, and I've always won, and I loved uh, the thought of making Ascension Sunday a really big festival, a really big feast, because this is something important to rejoice in and to think about. Because today we remember that glorious truth that our Savior and King has gone up to take his throne over the whole earth, and that from that throne he will subdue the nations. He rules. Who? Our man, our brother, our king, our representative is in charge. Where Adam failed to take dominion, Jesus has gloriously succeeded and has been crowned over all creation. So very quickly this morning, I don't know if I'm warmer than you are, but let's not make it a competition. We're both warm. So I'll make it quick. I want to look at three things about uh, Acts chapter 1, three things that he did for his apostles before he left. And then I want to make three very quick applications for why the ascension matters. The book of Acts begins with the ascension. In chapter 1, it's been 40 days since the resurrection, and it's 10 days before the day of Pentecost. And here the core of the church consists of 11 apostles, a handful of women, and 120 other brothers. It's to this little group that Jesus issues the command to go be witnesses until the end of the earth. Let that sink in for just a moment. A smaller group than we have in worship on most Sundays, he takes and points them to the whole earth, and he says, get after that. Go convert the world. Go convert the whole earth. I'm going to give you the resources and the power to do it. Go be creative. Take initiative. Take risks. Don't piddle around. Get busy, and you will be more than victorious. That sounds incredibly daunting, if not impossible, if not ridiculously impossible, but for the resources Jesus gave them in order to be able to do that. So look at what Jesus gives them. The first thing he gives them is himself. He's already given his life for them. But now on top of that, he sojourns with his apostles for 40 days, Acts 1, 3. 
Uh, Luke says he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Anytime we see a period of 40 throughout the scriptures, whether it's days or years, it's always a time of preparation. It's always a time of waiting for something new to happen, for a new creation to be born. So the waters were on the earth for 40 days during the flood. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness uh, tending sheep for his uh, father-in-law Jethro. And then later he spends 40 years tending sheep for Yahweh in the wilderness. Uh, Jesus here spent, uh, well, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And now Jesus spends another 40 days with them here before they launch, showing himself alive and showing his resurrection life to them. And in verse four, we read, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them. He taught them that little phrase being assembled together with them contains a Greek idiom that implies that they ate together. They were consistently eating together as he was gathered with them. In Luke's gospel that John read just a few minutes ago, uh, Luke's, when, when he tells about the end of Jesus's time with his apostles before he ascended, it says he ate fish and honeycomb with them. We know that he ate bread and feasted with the two disciples on the way to Emmaus. Peter's going to say this later. Peter says, listen to this closely. God raised him up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before God, even to us, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. So Jesus demonstrated the reality of his bodily resurrection, how? By eating and drinking with his people. Therefore, he's undeniably real. He's a man who eats and drinks. Not only that, but when we share food together, we grow in adoration and love for each other. You don't typically invite people to lunch who you, who you hate. You don't eat with people you can't stand to be around. In fact, if you, if you have trouble with somebody before you sit down to eat, you work that out. Or uh, sometimes a meal is a way of working out conflict. But you want to be at the end of the meal, you want to be at peace because food and feasting brings us together. It, it grows us more tightly together. So the disciples experienced this intimate, personal, incarnate fellowship at supper. And the effect then was not just they know about Jesus, not that they could just pick him up out of a lineup if they had to. They were fused together with him, bound with strong cords of camaraderie and fellowship. It was this physical closeness to the resurrected Christ, which initially gave them boldness and confidence to speak of his resurrection in the face of all manner of persecution and all threat of bodily harm. Now you think, boy, that must have been really fun. That must have been really nice to eat with Jesus and hear him teach you and talk to him. Wow, we're at a really big disadvantage because we can't do that, but the apostles had that. Well, no, we're not at a great disadvantage. We see Christ through the scriptures. We see him and hear him speak these words. We speak to him in prayer. And then we do eat with him just as really and truly as these apostles ate with him. This is why at the heart of Christian worship, there's a ritual meal. At the Lord's table, we are in a very real way eating with the ascended Jesus, communing with each other and with our Savior. It's this presence of Christ with us that continues to fuel and feed our mission. Jesus ate with them in order to become close to them. And that closeness, that intimacy energized his people. The same thing happens when you or I are called to his table. 
And so in this text, the very first thing he gives them is his own presence, his own body, his nearness. And it demonstrates the humanity of the man who ascends to the Father. Let's hold on to that for just a second, that he, he, he underscored, he highlighted his humanity. Now, though he had given them himself, he can't remain with them physically. He has to ascend to his Father. And so he left them with his spirit. He said, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Those are his last words before he ascends. We'll spend a little bit more time on this next week at Pentecost, but we confess in the words of the Nicene Creed that the Holy Spirit descends, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Father and the Son together send the Holy Spirit as a comforter as a helper, as an encourager, as an empowerer, as the down payment of the promise of the new creation. Before he says this in Acts chapter 1, Jesus had for a long time been promising his disciples, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not, I'm not going to leave you friendless. Back in John 15, which we read a couple of weeks ago, he said, when the helper comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the spirit of the truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. He will confirm everything that I say. In uh, John's gospel also, he says, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears of me, he will speak and he will tell you all things to come. He will glorify me for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. And then in the upper room on the morning of the resurrection, when he comes to and, and reveals himself to his apostles, he says, as the father has sent me, so I am sending you. And he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. So uh, all of these things that Jesus has been talking about over these last 40 days has been shot through with the promise of the coming Holy Spirit. Why do we need the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit has been at work since the beginning of the Bible over, uh, uh, hovering over a new creation, causing new things to come out of old dead things. This is the Holy Spirit who hovers over the waters of creation whose breath filled the nostrils of Adam, the wind that blew over the waters of the flood, the wind that blew back the waters of the Red Sea, the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that Jesus promises is about to blow as a rushing mighty wind through the church and, and give life to this new creation, life to this new humanity, the church. And this is the same spirit who dwells in you. Have you ever contemplated that? That the spirit who dwelt and hovered over the waters of creation, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the spirit that dwells in the church, same spirit, the same spirit that gives you new life and is continually regenerating and recreating and making something new in us. This spirit, Jesus says, is gonna give you power to be witnesses. The Greek word for witness and the word for martyr is the exact same word. A witness had to be ready to become a martyr. To be a witness means to be faithful to Jesus, whatever the cost, without concern for personal safety. And that's key because one of the things the Spirit does is drive us into conflict. Jesus was baptized. The Holy Spirit descended upon him. And what happened after that? Jesus was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to do battle with Satan. Um, as, the, as, as at Pentecost, the Spirit descends on the church 
and they are driven out to do battle with the Pharisees and the high priests and the Herods and the philosophers and the Judaizers and the Diana worshipers. The church is filled with the Spirit and she is driven to do battle. The church prevails because the Holy Spirit has loosened her from the grip of death and drives her into conflict where she's no longer fearful of death. She only is concerned about pleasing the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I read an article this morning that uh, said, you know what the problem with these Christians is and why we can't control them and why they're always wanting to do their own thing. The problem with these Christians is they have this view of eternal life. They have this view of the afterlife. And so uh, they're, they're, they take risks and they do things that we wouldn't do. Right, you got it. I, I, I know you're, I know you're uh, making a criticism there, uh, author of this, of this article, of this op-ed piece, but you're dead on. The Holy Spirit has loosened us from the grip and the terror of death and gives us power to be witnesses and take those necessary risks. All this builds up to the greatest comfort and assurance that he gives them there, and that was the ascension and the enthronement of Christ. After he had spoken, after Jesus spoke, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. The apostles saw with their own eyes Jesus and his ascent to his reward. Jesus shows them this is what happens when you're faithful. This is what happens to those who bear the cross. He goes up to be seated at the right hand of the Father in order to intercede for the church as her great high priest. Jesus doesn't just disappear. He doesn't just come up missing, which would have caused a great deal of confusion and consternation. What happened? Where did he go? Did he die? I mean, why, why did you just disappear? No, that's not what he did. Rather, by publicly displaying his ascent, Jesus gives his church a real sense of his continuing presence. They understand the scriptures. And so when Jesus goes up into a cloud, they know what that cloud is. In the Bible, clouds both uh, at once reveal and conceal God's glory, his heavenly glory. We think of the cloud that uh, led Israel in the wilderness, the glory cloud that filled the tabernacle and the temple, the bright cloud that enveloped Moses and Elijah as they were talking to Jesus at the transfiguration. Over and over and over in the scriptures, people hear God's voice speaking from the cloud. So if God's throne room were an iceberg, his glory cloud is just the tip of the iceberg. It's just the glimpse of the corner of that glory. So for the people who see Jesus ascend, there's no, no doubt to who Jesus is or where he's going. Uh, Psalm 68 surely would have been in their mind. Sing to God, sing praise to his name, extol him who rides on the clouds. His name is Yahweh and rejoice before him. This is the enthronement of Jesus over all the cosmos. The right king is now on his throne. Everyone who doesn't recognize him is either a usurper or a traitor. What a motivation now to fight vigorously, knowing that you're in the right and you're on the right side because your king, your friend, your shepherd is on the throne over all creation. So the disciples here are empowered by the presence of Jesus, by the gift of his Holy Spirit, and by his enthronement visibly, physically before their eyes, his enthronement over all creation. Now, very quickly, highlighting the importance of the ascension reminds us that the church is not just a collection of oddballs who like to do potlucks and read a very specific ancient book together. That's not what we are. The church is not a philosophy club. We're not a league of do-gooders and busybodies. The church is the body, the bride, 
The church is made up of the royal subjects of a real, living, actively ruling king, which means she has her own government. She has her own earthly physical presence. She has her own formidable role to play in every dimension of earthly society. And just think about three of the implications of this very quickly. Who is this man who has ascended to the heavenlies? He is the eternally begotten son of the father, the second person of the Trinity, who became man and absorbed the depth and the breadth of human experience. Jesus cried. He laughed. He grew. He feasted. He traveled. He sang. He read. He had a mother and a father. He had brothers and cousins and friends. He felt loneliness. He was hungry and he was thirsty. He was cold. He lost loved ones. He saw up close the devastation of death and divorce and disease and deformity. He was despised. He was falsely accused. He was betrayed. He was beaten and scarred. And he died and he went to the grave. What have you experienced in your life that Jesus doesn't have some familiarity with as a man? What have you known and what have you done and what have you been faced with that he is ignorant of? What did he miss out on in the human experience? Well, the scriptures say that uh, he was tempted in all points just like we are, yet without sin. He had, had experienced the gamut of human experience. And this man, Jesus who has vivid memories of all of these human experiences, has now been given all authority in heaven and earth, and this man sits on the right hand of the Father. A man with a scarred human body who knows exactly what it's like to go through whatever you are going through or have been through, this man is now in a position to sit right next to our Father God and intercede on our behalf. He can say to the Father, have mercy Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, protect them. Father, vindicate them. Deliver them. Save them. Heal them. No other intercessor will do. And he, the one who has experienced all of this, has gone up to sit at the right hand of the Father. That's one implication and a great application of the ascension of Jesus. Secondly, that man, Jesus, is forever on the throne of heaven and has been exalted by his father to be judge of all the earth. Now, that might sound intimidating or concerning to think of judgment. But if you think about it, it's uh, reassuring and it's actually quite liberating. Our world is filled with unjust judges and authorities who weigh things out according to false weights and measures. Not only in government, but self-appointed judges, accusers who lay heavy expectations and heavy burdens on you. These are all fickle. These human authorities are arbitrary, mercurial, unprincipled, self-serving. But your ascended judge and my judge and the only one whose judgment actually ultimately matters, our judge is completely consistent, fully just, and entirely merciful. That means nobody ever gets away with anything ever. That means in the end, everything is sorted out in equity. And Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So we make it our aim to please him. And it's a wonderful thing that he's not impossible to please. Love him and keep his commandments. 
That's what you got to do. That's all there is. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't move the goalposts. He doesn't manipulate you or mistreat you. He is not out to get you. The judge and king of all the earth is your friend. He is your shepherd. He is your brother. He is the only one whose opinion means anything ultimately. And that's what we see in the ascension. Thirdly, and finally, the fact that Jesus has been exalted as king means that I'm not king and you aren't king. It's been popular in biblical studies for quite some time to say, wherever you see the phrase Jesus is Lord, that means Caesar isn't. And that's true, and that's fine. But it also means every time you read Jesus is Lord, that means you aren't. That means I'm not. You aren't Lord and King, neither am I. No matter how much of an independent free spirit you think you may be, you are under his authority. That means you are obligated to obey him and worship him and serve him. You are accountable to him for your disobedience and your unbelief. Jesus is king over all things. Not any world government, not Wall Street, not Hollywood, not any writer or thinker or philosopher or expert. Everything, everywhere is under his authority. And there is not one inch of the cosmos that is out from under his control. He's not just king of your heart. He's not just king of your head. He's not just king of your home. He's not just king of your prayer time. He's not just king of a little part of your life on Sunday morning. He is king of all the earth. Of every hour, of every minute, of every day, Jesus is king over all. So you can submit to him now, or you can submit to him later in the day of judgment. But sooner or later, everyone everywhere and everything submits to Jesus. Because he is the risen and exalted and ascended king who lives and reigns over all creation. That is the glorious truth of the ascension of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our ascended king, and we pray that you would conform us more and more to his image so that we might be more and more conformed and obedient to his rule in all things. So Father, strengthen us and guide us and give us your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.